At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year. That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness, or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. In the Western world in particular, we live in a culture of both capitalism and patriarchy that relies on people feeling bad about themselves. (laughs) That is one of the biggest parts of the economy is this constant desire to hack your life and high performance, lose weight and color your grades. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, here we are at episode 127, in which I interview Megan Burks. Megan is a certified professional coach, embodiment educator, and steel mace flow teacher based in Australia. She was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 38, which she says is to nobody's great surprise. And she now supports women in midlife who are seeking to show up as all of who they are, the joyful, the messy, and everything in between. Megan describes her work as, quote, where the science meets the soul. And she uses a combination of modalities to help her clients discern what they really want in life and how to get it, using their neurodivergence as an asset in the work. As a trauma-informed somatic practitioner, Megan is incredibly passionate about helping women address the feelings of shame and sadness that can come up when diagnosed with ADHD as adults. As liberating as it is to have that, aha, that's why I am the way I am feeling, the grief that many of us experience when we look back over the decades that were shaped by fear, anger, and misunderstanding can be overwhelming. Megan and I talk all about managing shame and grief after a diagnosis, as well as embodiment practices and learning to sit with and move through our heavy emotions. 
We also discuss some of the differences between therapy and coaching when it comes to ADHD. Megan is originally from Canada, and I really loved listening to her hybrid Canadian-Australian accent. I got so much out of this conversation, and I know you will too. Enjoy. Well, Megan, thank you so much for joining me all the way from Australia. Where in Australia are you? Oh, you're in Victoria. I am. I'm, uh, I live in a beautiful area called the Mornington Peninsula. I'm about an hour outside of Melbourne. Okay. Awesome. And how did you end up there? That's a good story. I was teaching in Asia. I will tell this story in the most succinct, non-ADHD way that I possibly can, you know, without all the twists. I came to visit my mother. So she had married an Australian, moved to Australia. I came to visit her. It was my summer holiday. So it was ski season here. So I came to go skiing in Australia. She introduced me to the very nice young man that she'd been working with. And 24 hours later, we were engaged. Uh, I had a sort of a similar experience with my husband. We knew immediately. And and so now I sort of think back where I'm like, is that is there ADHD in there just in terms of that? Like, you know, you know, right? That impulsivity element of like, nope, my, my mind's made up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. So how long ago was that? How long have you been there? Almost 17 years. Um, and I was... I was teaching in Asia before that. I was doing human rights work in uh, Central America before that. And as of next year, I will have lived outside of Canada, which is where I'm originally from, as long as I lived inside of Canada, which blows my mind because I never I never planned to leave Canada. I mean, I was traveling, but I always assumed I would go back, settle down in Canada and put down my roots uh, that's not the way it's happened. And, you know, there are definitely moments. It's funny when I tell that story. That's one of those experiences in my life that since my diagnosis, I look back on and go, "Ooh, there's that impulse control or that, you know, let's just be all in on everything. And there's definitely been moments in a 17 year marriage. There's ups and downs. We've got kids. One has complex needs where things have been tough. Things have been challenging. And I've thought, oh, you know, was that just my impulsivity? And then I have to go, no, because that impulsivity, in many ways, I've made bad decisions at times, but they've all been stepping stones for me to be exactly where I am in this moment, which feels perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I I often feel that way too in terms of the wanderlust and all of the different even you know I even talk about that with a lot of my failed businesses which I'm like all of them have kind of led to where I am today in this patchwork quilt of various random uh, talents and insights and all of these things where I, you know, I have no regrets as many, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I don't have much savings either, but that's another story. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about your diagnosis. You were diagnosed how long ago? Uh, so it was, how old am I? 45, I gotta do the math. So about seven years ago. So I was in my late thirties. I, like many people, had had people tease me my whole life. Oh, you have ADHD, shiny object syndrome, squirrel brain, things like that. And it hadn't been suggested to me until probably my mid-20s or late 20s that 
maybe it was ADHD. And I think certainly at that time as well, uh, ADHD was still, you know, is it a real thing? You know, there was still this stigma around that at times. And I think I was very, very narrow-minded, as are many people, which is why this podcast is so important. I was very narrow-minded in my ideas about what ADHD is and how it presents. And I had ruled myself out of that because I'd always done well in school. I excelled academically. That was my hyper-focus, was academics. I was really good at extending myself academically and taking on extra work and things to keep myself engaged, lots of extracurriculars. But it wasn't until my late 30s when my son, who is now 13, was going through the diagnosis process for ADHD to get him some additional uh, support in the school. And reading through the Vanderbilt survey that they use here for diagnosis, and I just sat there and was going, oh, 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 you know, and the the scale of never, occasionally, sometimes, always, I was like, always, 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 and that was a real eye-opener for me. And then I did get diagnosed really as a way to honor myself. You know, I didn't know if I was going to take medication. There was no funding available for me with a diagnosis. But I really felt like for me, going through that process and the financial investment that goes with that, which it was different seven years ago than it is now in Australia, was really a way of looking at those parts of myself that I had always written off as lazy or flighty or can't stick with it or bossy or loud or can't keep her mouth shut or talks too much. A lot of the too much, too much, too much, too much. It was actually a way of me embracing that and not from the perspective of, oh, I want to understand this so I can change it. It was... I want to understand this so I can really utilize the best bits of ADHD and create structures in my life that help lessen the strain that I feel because of my beautiful brain when I have to do things like paperwork or fold the laundry or, you know, wash the last three forks in the dishpan And so it actually, for me, was probably one of the biggest steps on my healing journey in terms of embracing the diagnosis and all of the understanding that came with that. And now it is such a privilege for me that I get to do that with other women. So perfectly said. And and I so perfectly said. And and I really relate to that in terms of working with Working with women who are newly diagnosed, who often are in that phase of, okay, now I know what's wrong with me. How do I fix it? And and having to kind of unravel, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with you. (laughs) Uh, You know, let's, let's think about what works, what doesn't work, what structures, what we need, what supports you need. But let's not take the, you know, let's not take the approach of the fact that like, we're going to fix all of this. And we're going to, you know, turn you into some sort of super productive workhorse. (laughs) So now when you were going over this list, 
Um, when you were going over the list with your, what, during your son's diagnosis or even during your own diagnosis, what were some of the things that you looked back over your life or your childhood where you said, oh, wow, okay, the, the signs were actually there all along? Absolutely. Uh, so one, you know, common comment on every report card I ever had was Megan is an excellent student, but she talks too much in class. And I remember being pulled up on that my whole life. And always being surprised when people would say, stop interrupting, stop talking, because I didn't even know I was doing it. And that is an area that still I'm launching my own podcast in a few weeks. And there's a few of the interviews where I talk over the guest and I'm not trying to steal the spotlight or the limelight, but I get excited and I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so that was one. The biggest one for me, actually, that was a really just a funny like, oh, moment is that, you know, if you look at my bookshelf and my obsessions in biochemistry, mycology, anatomy, poetry, knitting, crocheting, sourdough baking, food photography, like all these things. And I look back on when I was a kid and I had a new club every week. So like we had a babysitter's club. That's I'm aging myself here. That was very much when the babysitter's club original series was a hot topic. I had book clubs before they were thing. I had skipping clubs, I had, you know, pogo ball clubs, bike clubs. And that was really a reflection of the fact that every time I had an activity that I enjoyed, I had this desire to take it to the nth degree. And I would want to read books about it. And I would want to find out more about it. Now, this is all pre internet. So it was incredibly limited in my small town library trying to get books about anything that was outside the, you know, the very small scope of what the library would carry. But I had this beautiful librarian, she was about a 1000 years old. And she would find these books at other libraries, and she would get them for me. And I would sit there and I would pour over them. And then I would start these clubs, and I would have notebooks, and there would be these rules and the structure. And I was so bossy that nobody wanted to be a part of my club. So it was usually just me in the club because I would get very obsessed with how things had to be. I know you were laughing in recognition, you know, but these are all the parts of myself that now as a grown woman, when I work with my coaching clients, I get to be obsessed about certain things with them and then help them find a way to bring that kind of all into their life. So that the talking too much, that kind of thing, um, the impulse control for me, certainly in my 20s, significant financial issues. A real inability, which I still struggle with at times in my 40s, to think ahead because I tend to be so hyper fixated on what's happening around me. I had issues with drug and alcohol addiction because everything I did, I was just, I was all in 100% of the time. And then when I cleaned up the drug and alcohol addiction, I was, you know, the model sober person to the nth degree. And that constant pendulum swing back and forth between those extremes that has only really been for me in the last five years that I've started to find that kind of balance somewhere in the middle 
which it still swings out. Um, but reading that questionnaire, the only questions that I didn't answer positive to, and my son wasn't an always kind of thing either, where there was some questions about engages in criminal activity or hurts animals, like those kinds of real violent outbursts as this measurement of an inability to think about consequences and what would actually happen. So that, like, there was like three questions that I wasn't ticking always or almost always to. Mm-hmm. I always thought that those questions were to rule out other mood disorders. I didn't, I would never actually have associated any of those with ADHD, typical ADHD behaviors. I always thought it was like to rule out other possibilities, but interesting. I remember those questions too. And just being like, well, and, and also feeling so stigmatized too, right? Like, yeah, I remember when I was taking psychology 101 and I took it recently, I never took it my first time around in, in undergrad, but I took it recently and reading the chapter on ADHD was so disappointing because it really portrayed it as though people with ADHD are likely to have more criminal activity or they're likely to be, you know, uh, deviant. And, and there was no sense of really pulling apart the why, right? Like why so many people with ADHD are how, you know, are becoming dependent on, um, substance or, you know, or, or substance abuse or why they end up in jail. It's not because of the ADHD. It's because of the the treatment that they're getting from the adults in their life. Right. And you think about like the number of times we are corrected and disciplined and, and it, it grates on you. Right. And then you end up being oppositional and, and having, you know, self-soothing and self-regulating with alcohol and other substances. Like it's so complicated and nuanced. And I think it was really disappointing to just see it played out in this textbook as though, because you have ADHD, therefore you will are likely to have these behaviors. And while yes, there is a correlative element there, like there's no curiosity about what's causing all of that behavior. Anyway, that's a whole other tangent about the, the way it's, the way it's being taught to our practitioners even still is really frustrating. I was going to say, I I think in Australia, we had last year for the first time, the introduction of clinical guidelines for the diagnosis of ADHD that were, you know, cohesive and uniform. And I feel that there has been significant progress with that. Now, the downside to that here is that a lot of women in their forties are going, holy shit, I have ADHD. And it's become this kind of joke like, oh, look at all these women getting this diagnosis because it's trendy or it's this or it's that, which isn't the case. It's that literally those diagnostic tools did not exist for women later in life until last year. And starting to see a separation between the gendered aspects of ADHD, which again, you know, we can't generalize that oh, boys and men present this way, girls and women present this way, but there are differences, generally speaking. And then I think also, what you just brought up is a really important point, because it's something that I address a lot in my work, that shame that we carry from always being made to feel as children, that we were too much, we were too much, we were too much, we were too loud, we we're too big, too noisy, too complicated, too fast. You know, that creates a world and a reality, especially for women, where we spend most of our lives trying to shrink ourselves 
both emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically, so that that shame and that attention is no longer on us. And that is a trauma. And there are significant links between trauma and ADHD. Um, You and I have spoken briefly about that. We're not going to blame it all on our mothers. That is certainly not the only place that this trauma came from. But there is a lot there. And so I have... I have a lot of hope for this in the future and for the destigmatization of it, but it's happening slowly, really slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think another thing that we I, I feel like we discuss a lot on this podcast is um, the evidence of struggle in childhood for women, which was doctors are saying, you know, it can't be ADHD, because there's no evidence that you had it when you were a child, you did well in school, you were well behaved, you've got a job, you went to university, all of these things that are quote, unquote, successful. And so therefore, you can't possibly have it. And then that brings up the idea of like, well, I yes, I was able to do all of those things, but I was white knuckling it through the whole time. And I have severe depression and anxiety as a result. And, you know, the struggle was something I was really, really good at masking. And so it's like, that's another layer of this grief, which was like, nobody helped me. There was no structures in place to help me when I was a child. I was doing this all by myself. And now as an adult, something's come along as a catalyst to, you know, knock all of these, this house of cards off the table. And, and now I can't cope anymore. And I'm asking for help. And I'm being told, sorry, you don't need it. You're not bad. And you're not, you know, badly off enough (laughs) to warrant help. And it's like, you know, you're just back on this hamster wheel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, talking about the grief um, and the shame, I do want to get back on that because it's such a huge, it is such a big part of the diagnosis journey. I don't know if I've ever talked to a woman who didn't kind of go through her life or, you know, look through her life and feel very emotional about the life that she could have had, right? Or, you know, why did nobody see the signs? Why didn't I get the help? I did what, how could my life have been different? And, and I feel like that's something you, you work on a lot with your clients when it comes to adult diagnosis, right? And, and the, the sadness that is woven into this diagnosis, even though it can be so liberating and so profoundly, there's so much profound positivity in a diagnosis, but it's woven with this really, really difficult to articulate feelings of of shame and sadness. How do you even begin to unpack that with your clients who sometimes might come to you and be like, I just teach me how to like do all the things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So a lot of my clients come to me and they're like, I am not organized. I want to get my paper sorted or because the niche of ADHD coaching has really found me in the last kind of 12 months, those are the clients who are seeking me out at this point. And they come to me and they want, you know, very quick fix, practical solutions to get on top of things. And one of the first things I say to them is, look, I can give you a system. I can tell you that I have a 30 day quick fix, take control of your life program but we know that that's not going to work. How many planners do you have? How many of those programs have you purchased? And so if we're not willing to do some of that more emotional work of starting to unpack the hows and the whys and those old narratives, 
that change is not sustainable and it generally does not last. And so I work a lot in embodiment, in asking women to sit with their feelings. Now, this is something when you have ADHD, and I'm very much aware it's important for me to acknowledge that I am generalizing to some degree um, because your ADHD is different from my ADHD. Right. And so I'm aware of that. So when I talk about when you have ADHD, I know that there's always going to be outliers and exceptions to these rules. But in, from an embodiment perspective, a lot of women that I work with, when I say, you know, describe your intellectual self, describe your physical self. It's one thing I hear a lot is like, oh, my head's like this balloon that's like bobbing around, disconnected from my body. And so many people have tried over the meditation, for example, right? Meditation is fantastic. It's great for the brain. Mindfulness, it's great for the brain. Nobody is disputing that fact. But when you come to the approach of that practice as this thing you're going to do and sit in stillness, if you have hyperactive ADHD, you're probably not going to sit in stillness. And the immediate practice of something like that and going, oh, I can't do this. Let's throw it all out. No, let's find a different way to tweak that. And the area that I start to see the shame and the grief coming up, and this is the other reason why as a coach, most of my clients have had significant therapy or psychologists input over the years, or they are working concurrently with other allied health professionals. As a coach, I work with what is now, what is in the future. I work with what happened in the past insofar as it informs some of those narratives and stories that we're telling ourselves, but I'm not a therapist. And so there's, a, there's an ethical boundary there for me. But where it often comes up for women is when their children are diagnosed, which is a very common way that women in their 30s and 40s find themselves often going through that process of diagnosis for a child and going, oh, oh, gosh, look, I tick all these boxes. Every time I give one of my children, so one has ADHD, one is autistic. Every time I give them something that I needed as a child that I did not receive, there is a grief that comes with that. Because little Megan is sad that she didn't get that. And I can look at that incredibly compassionately. My mother apologized to me recently. I'm so sorry we didn't catch mom. It was the 80s. The only kids with ADHD were the boys who were throwing chairs through the windows in school. You know, like that, that was it. That was, that was the, the, um, the avatar for a person with ADHD. There's no way it would have been diagnosed where I grew up at the time that it was. And I can look at my parents and go, you know, they did the best they could with what they had at the time, 100%. Both of them are neurodivergent, undiagnosed, but I'm going to say that 100%. I'm going to diagnose them right now. My mother will probably listen to this. Um, and I can acknowledge the fact that I did not have access to the advocacy and the support that I needed to thrive as a young girl in particular. And I think this is where working with someone, whether it's a coach or a therapist who understands neurodivergency, is really, really, really important because, again, the ADHD brain tends 
two extremes. So we tend to either or black, white. It is one of the ways that we make sense of the very overwhelming amounts of information that our brain is struggling to organize and discern and, you know, sort out. And the reality of a human life is that it is complex and we need to find a way to change the either or to a both and. And to understand that we can be both disorganized and organized. We can do both of those things. And that, you know, that's just one example. I can be both happy and sad. I can be both in love with myself and want to work on parts of my personality. It doesn't have to be this, oh, I'm a piece of crap, everything's wrong with me, or I just love everything about me. We can find a way to dance in that nuance. But this is where having an outside person, even a really good friend who can be honest with you, because again, my personal experience certainly has been you buy the planner or you do the course, you try it for two weeks, everything doesn't change immediately. And you go, well, this doesn't work for me. I'm just too, you know, stupid, lazy, whatever, fill in the blank. And you throw it out. So having someone be able to sit with you through those moments of that shame and grief, grief is heavy. And the reality of grief is that it is nonlinear. There is no way to predict or explain how long it's going to take you to heal and feel whole. Those are, those are subjective judgments that vary widely from, you know, minute to minute, day to day. But when we can sit with some of those heavy emotions and we can find a way to feel some lightness in joy in this new understanding of ourselves, that's a really beautiful moment. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, 
self-guided and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. This idea of the of the yes and I think is really important. And, you know, the fact that we can be incredibly intelligent and competent human beings and also need an incredible amount of help and support is something that I work on a lot with my clients. It's something I work on a lot with myself, which is like, why is asking for help? Why does asking for help feel like failure um, when when it's perfectly natural? And then I'm like, is that because women are taught that? Or like, I'm like, why is it? What is it about people with so many of us, people with ADHD really struggle with that either or element of you know, either I'm really good or I'm a failure and there's nothing in between. It's like, it's, what is it about our brains that make it so difficult for us to see multifaceted parts of our personality? I don't know. Maybe it's, it's a dopamine issue or it's just like we go from zero to a hundred so quickly. Like, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud right now, but it is something so many of us struggle with, which is the if I need help and support, therefore it must mean I'm a failure. And it's it's so self-destructive in terms of how our, our self-concept. One of the analogies I use for coaching all the time is, is it like a personal trainer, right? Which is like, some people are able to go to a gym and they're able to just pay for a gym membership and show up and use the material, you know, use the machines and they're great. Uh, and some people need to go to a class and they like the accountability of showing up to the class every week, but the class isn't really tailored to those people. So, you know, a personal trainer is somebody who you can be accountable to, you can have an individual relationship with, they can, they can give you individualized attention and, you know, and, and you'll show up for them. Like it's a, it's a great way to kind of invest in yourself and, and be able to get, uh, you know, more results. But then I also think about coaching versus therapy. And I'm like, a personal tra- if you show up to a personal trainer, and you've got a gaping flesh wound, <laughs> the personal trainer can't be like, no problem. That's fine. Get right. Get on the elliptical. They're going to be like, dude, you need to heal the gaping flesh wound before we can work on what comes next. And that's where I feel like sometimes as a coach, we have to be really, really, um, it's really tricky with ADHD because it's so, there's so much trauma intertwined in the executive dysfunction. And it can be really irresponsible to say, like you said, oh, I'll just teach you this course. And here's five easy steps for you to, you know, get a new calendar and, and ace your day and all of these ways in which we kind of sell this narrative. But at the same time, like realizing there's a lot of healing that has to be done simultaneously and it, it's complicated. And I, it really, yeah, it's one of the things that bothers me about certain, some coaching platforms where they really sort of are like, no, this is great. It's a superpower and let's move on. And this is, we're going to, we're going to hack our ADHD and we're going to make the most of it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're in such, you're just, you're just bandaid. You're just using a bandaid and chewing gum to ignore some of the deeper issues. Uh, but yeah. And I, I think that as long as we are living in a world that is really set up for neurotypical people, 
being neurodivergent in any way is challenging. You know, it's challenging. And this is where I look at when I am in an environment. So I do, I have my own business, but I do landscaping two days a week. And when my business really started to grow post-pandemic, the original kind of goal in my life was that I would not be doing the landscaping. And there was a few weeks that I didn't do it. And I very quickly realized that I do really well with having two days a week of hard physical labor, right? That is my embodiment practice. That is my meditation and my mindfulness and finding that balance. And so I look at all these things that are challenging for me. And I think if I was a homesteader and my whole life revolved around waking up at the ass crack of dawn and getting up and working all day in, you know, this really particular manner so that I could survive, I would thrive. But because I have to do things like sit in traffic, because I have to do things like use computers, which you know, my computer didn't start right away this morning. And of course, I'm like, well, this is the biggest disaster of my entire life, right? This is that either or that extremism that we go to. And this is where my focus, you know, I'm, I'm in an incredible position this year to be homeschooling my 10 year old, um, who is the one who is autistic. And it's what he needs. It's what he needs right now. And that has not come without sacrifice. It has not come without challenges. It is not perfect. But recognizing the fact for him, any mainstream school wouldn't have been a good fit for where he is right now after the pandemic. So we here in Victoria, in Australia, we were locked down. We had the longest and the strictest lockdowns of any place in the entire world for the two years. We weren't more than five kilometers from our home. You know, it was it was a lot. And there's a trauma a collective trauma that has emerged from that. And so, you know, I can look at all these things. And I think for me too, when I'm working with my clients and with the selling of coaching, because coaching, as you know, being a coach is still a bit of a, (laughs) it's not a real job. Like, you know, what do you mean people need you to like be a cheerleader for them to get stuff done. And I'm like, you know what, if your life is great, and it's perfect, and you are ticking the boxes and kicking goals, fine. But please do not stigmatize and shame people who need support. If somebody is unable to walk, and they need to use some kind of a frame or a mobility device to do that, we don't shame them for that. And we need to start to extend that awareness to mood disorders, mental health disorders. I don't even want to use the word disorders. I'm going to go back to using neurodivergencies because that's what they are. We're humans. We are different. That is the reality of it. And so when it comes to selling, selling, oh, see, even that word, I'm like, selling. I don't want to sell things to people. (laughs) I don't try to convince people. I work from a framework of called consent-based marketing. So I don't do the whole find their pain point, maximize the promise them that you can fix it for them. But what I do ask them is, how long have you been thinking about this? How long has this been an issue for you? And then I say to them, if three to six months of coaching could really help you find sustainable and impactful ways to address those concerns, is that worth the financial investment? And I can say all that with the awareness, as you would have as well. I can't make my clients go. I don't move in with them, 
for six months and follow them around and make sure that they eat and they drink water and they do what they say, you know. So there's this whole level of offering what I can, working with them as best I can in a very individualized way within a framework, and then knowing that at some point, and I know this from personal experience, if I want to stay stuck over here in this really old story, because even though it's a terrible narrative, it's familiar because I've heard it for like 45 years in my head on loop, you know, I'm, I'm used to it, then that's where I'm going to stay. I'm not going to blame that on someone else. I'm not going to blame it on my circumstance. I'm going to try to take responsibility for it. But you can't see that you even have the option of taking responsibility for it until you do the very emotionally painful work sometimes of recognizing where that trauma, where those stories, where those narratives came from in the first place. And I think Really understanding as well for people with ADHD and for women in particular, when you look at things like rejection sensitivity disorder, you look at these these other kind of components sometimes of an ADHD diagnosis or, or life, I can remember, you know, when the one time my primary school teacher got angry with me once. Once, but I can sit here and recall that memory and get hot in the face and feel as a shame. And like you tell that to other people, and they're like, girl, you need to let some stuff go. Like, how do you even remember all? Like, I can remember the insults, I can hear the voices, you know, and that that ability to recall those moments is a blessing and a curse because I can also recall the joyful moments and the fun moments. But there is a negativity bias for me the harder ones are easier to recall for whatever reason. I think we're starting to understand that scientifically there is something there. We don't really understand why that is yet. But working through all of this, which is why I say to everyone, find somebody to support you. Because it's a really, it's a tough process, you know? And I think when you get, when you get the diagnosis of anything, whether it's a mental thing or a physical thing, there's this moment of like, oh my gosh. And then often there's relief, like, oh, and then there's this hope, you know, oh, I'm going to take this medication or I'm going to do this and everything's just going to be fixed. And that's not often the case. Brain chemistry is very tricky, especially if you're a woman in your 40s and we're layering paramenopause and menopause. (laughs) That adds a whole other layer with our hormones and our chemistry and all of those things interconnected to have someone sit with you and go, this isn't going to be an overnight quick fix. This is going to take some time, but I'm going to be here to support you through this process. And that can be listening to podcasts like this. It doesn't have to be a paid professional. If that is not in your budget, there are some great free resources that are available online and through social media, this podcast, there's some other great podcasts about there, just hearing other women's stories and seeing yourself represented by these women and going, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who feels this way. I'm not the only person who is wildly successful and a chaotic mess all the time, you know, 
there's there's a lot of power in finding that community. Here, here. And and not only that, but I think, you know, when we're sold this narrative uh, from the clinical community, which is, uh, you know, you, you're diagnosed with ADHD, you get the medication, and then you're sent on your way. And we're, you know, when it's, when it's packaged like medication for any other, you know, for diabetes or, or high blood pressure. And then you're also told there's a two, there's a two year wait list for your diagnosis. Of course, you're going to send women into a panic (laughs) because they're kind of, they, they feel like the one and only effective treatment is now two years away. And so, you know, that's where we really feel like there's such an, to really expand the idea around what managing ADHD looks like and what a treatment plan looks like in addition to medication um, so that we can feel empowered. We can feel empowered through a self-diagnosis and we can feel empowered to make those changes that you're we were beautifully talking about. I wanted to get back to this dwelling on the negative too, because that was one that's something I work on a lot with my clients and my theory around that. And and really my, my mind was blown when I first learned about the default mode network in ADHD 2.0. Hallowell and Rady talk about the default mode network. And it was so mind blowing to me to think about the fact that it's more interesting for our brains to think about the negative, to dwell on the negative. That's where the dopamine is. And that is like, it's the problem to be solved. Right. And it's why so many of us, you know, if you get a 98% on an exam, we're like, where's the other 2%, <laughs> you know, it's like, we're only focusing on what's missing in so many elements because it's so, it's so much more interesting for us to solve that problem. Everything that is effortless to us is boring. And so you think about that idea of, focusing on the negative in when it comes to problem solving. And then you think about like how that affects our overall sense of self and, and, <laughs> and our opinion of ourselves when we're only ever dwelling on the negative. And you're like, huh, that's funny. I wonder why we're all so depressed and anxious. And <laughs> so it's been really, it's been so fascinating to me to think about the fact that like, that's where we naturally go and, and not going there actually takes a lot of effort. And, and it's, it's a practice just like any other physical, you know, practice that the, it's, it's building a muscle of self-acceptance and also reframing, right? And the the power of reframing a lot of these behaviors in a way that is a positive light and sort of seeing that balance, I think, is so important. And yes, it's work, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it is. Uh, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. I refuse to think that I refuse to sell any sort of idea that this is this is an easy journey, but I think it is rewarding and incredibly empowering. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. 
What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash womenadhd. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash womenadhd. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. When you were talking about the landscaping business, which is really interesting, the idea of like, hmm, maybe we just need a whole bunch of really different, varied part-time jobs. But you were talking about the, the landscaping business. Meanwhile, it's like you've done all this with traveling in the wanderlust and then the teaching. And then also you you wrote a book of poetry at some point. Like It's just like the signs were so clearly there all along. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did. Shameless plug. I know. Right. I know. I know. And I think in all of that, for me, embracing all these things I love without feeling like it has to be this full time thing that I'm the expert in has been really, really key to that. And that's been this expansion of self. And I think that some of that is very much linked to the patriarchy. Women are complex, like we are complex. We are mothers, we are lovers, we are wives, but like we're also our own person. And we live in a society that wants to put us in these little boxes because it's easier to control us. And I think when you start to realize that in the Western world in particular, we live in a culture of both capitalism and patriarchy that relies on people feeling bad about themselves. (laughs) That is one of the biggest parts of the economy is this constant desire to hack your life and high performance, lose weight and color your grades and, 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 you know, bodily autonomy, do what you will with your body, I will defend that right. However, when we start to realize where some of that storytelling is coming from, that's a really empowering moment. And that, that focusing on the negative for me is very much connected to it. You know, I can look at a photo of myself and my eyes will zoom right in on like the one little fat lump, right? Or the fact that there was like like a hair. I remember getting school photos back with like one hair sticking up and being, "Ah," you know, horrified. And now my kids live in a world where they Photoshop that out. They Photoshop out their pimples and all, you know. And what you said about the the default mode network, that's a great book, by the way. Um, I've got it sitting right here on my shelf. And the other book that I really, that goes along with that thought, because I'm very interested in evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. So I used to be, uh, I still am, but not as obsessive, used to be very much connected with the paleo lifestyle and really, you know, getting back to our roots and, and that kind of thing. I've found the moderation in there instead of the extremism at this point. But there's another really great book called The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. And he talks about comfort creep. And what he means by that, it's very similar to that default mode network, is that 
Human brains only evolved because we need it to solve problems. We need it to find food. We need it to find shelter. We need it to find water. We need it to stay warm. We need it to stay cool. You know, we were constantly, for our survival as a species and the evolution of our species, we were constantly having to find ways to overcome obstacles. And what has actually happened here in good old 2023, where those needs are pretty easily met, you know, I can meet every one of those needs today, walking no further than like 30 feet from where I'm sitting right now, is that because my mind still from an evolutionary perspective craves that, it starts to make up problems. And it will start to fixate on things. And this ability to look at our drive to find problems to solve, but also be a grown up and be realistic about the problems that we feel that we're dealing with. So let's say someone makes a negative comment online and we fixate on that. Does that really matter? And so with anyone, I think that question of, you know, five, 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 will this matter in five minutes? Will it matter in five months? Will it matter in five years? Hardly anything's going to matter in five months. A lot of stuff actually doesn't matter in five minutes if you're willing to just let it go and pretend it didn't happen. Because like, is it actually a thing? But again, that takes self-control. And with an ADHD brain, because anytime I have to teach myself a new way of thinking or a new way of dealing with something, even when it's not new, when I have to choose to engage parts of my brain that is not what my brain naturally wants to be doing... I'm exhausted. There's a cost to that. There's an energetic cost to that. And so I can sit down and do my paperwork, but I will feel like I need a nap after that. And that's the reality of it, you know? And so becoming aware of those things that, yes, we can learn these skills, but it's hard. Like it can be, it's really, you know, people will say to me like, oh, I put my laundry away and I felt like I just run 10Ks. Why is that? And I'm like, because you were focused on a task that doesn't interest you, or you just leave your laundry in baskets. Like, again, does that matter in five months if you didn't fold the laundry? Like, these are all choices we have to make for ourselves. It's fascinating. Our our human brains are so marvelous, but so bad at some things, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's another thing I have to remind myself, and I also remind my clients when it comes to executive dysfunction you know, once you're aware of the areas in which you experience difficulty with executive functioning, it's tiring. It is exhausting. It is really, really taxing. And so even though we might have that impulse to say, oh, if only I had a full day to deal with all of these doctor's appointments and clean my closet and do my laundry, like I want to do it all in one day. And then you realize why after one hour, you're sacked out on the couch. It's because it is really, really taxing. We can't, we can't do it in more than like a 20, 20 or 30 minute bursts, right? And so we we have these assumptions that we're like, well, I can hyperfocus, so I'm going to do it all in one day. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> these are the hard parts that anything that is executive functioning is going to be a struggle. And it's going to be something that's kind of the disability part of ADHD, which is you really need support and you need time and you need to take it down a notch and really take care of yourself when it comes to these particular things, as opposed to just jamming your way through. 
That's a lot to unpack too, because I think a lot of us were told try harder, work harder, right? We we received those correcting <laughs> yeah. messages in childhood, which is like, figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. And so we're in that constant mindset of the swan madly paddling or treading water, just being like, okay, I got to figure it out. I got to try harder. I got to try harder. As opposed to like, no, you got to, you got to do less. <laughs> you got to really like, you got to only give yourself 20 minutes of this hell. I'm going to put a link to the comfort crisis because I really like that idea. I think it it plays into that idea that uh, sort of sort of what is comforting about the idea of having the the hunter brain and the farmer brain, which is really the idea that like there are so many different ways of thinking. We're all used to, you know, we're just stuck in a society that values one way of thinking over another. And so we are not the problem. Our brains are not the problem. We we are in an, a hostile environment. <laughs> yeah and i think that anyone who's neurotypical would be like well that sounds awfully dramatic katie but it doesn't feel that way when you understand even for me there are times when i am driving and i pull up at an unfamiliar intersection and there's like you know especially if i'm in the city you know there's no right turn between 7 and 9 a.m and no trucks and this and there's all these signs and i think Oh my gosh, like the how can anybody's human brain take in this sheer volume of information and process it, much less my brain, you know? And I think that ability to understand and embrace our capacity and this for me has been a both and I can both understand my capacity and I can be disappointed sometimes that my capacity is not what I want it to be. I was supposed to be doing stand-up on this this Sunday that's coming up and I was really excited. I haven't done stand-up for a long time. You know, it was on the books and I've had a really challenging week. And I woke up the other morning and I could feel that my central nervous system is completely dysregulated I'm very activated. I'm very much coming from the sympathetic nervous system right now. I'm struggling to get the parasympathetic, you know, and I'm doing all the things. I'm doing my cold showers. I'm doing my breathing. I'm, you know, drinking water, all these things. And I canceled my stand-up gig. And I was disappointed. And I know that that's the best thing for me right now because despite the fact the actual five minutes of being on stage was quite exciting, but it's in the city. It's like a whole day. I've got to drive. I've got to find parking. I've got to do this. It's like 40 degrees today. It's really hot right now in Melbourne. So it's over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It's gross. When I thought about it, I could just feel my whole body going into that panicked mode. And this is where, as an adult, there are things I don't have a choice about. Dealing with meltdowns and tantrums and... <sighs> invoices and, all, you know, there are things I have to do, but then there's things I don't have to do. And I could cancel that and be sad and also not tell myself the story that, oh, I'm, I'm a failure or I'm this or, you know, oh, you're just scared. I didn't have to make it this whole thing. And I think that too with people, I really encourage my clients. So I don't do nutrition coaching. I have a background in it, but food plays a huge role in our ADHD. And so I know certainly for me, when I have to do a mentally taxing task, I need some quick carbs after that. And if I'm eating sugar, I might have a few lolly snakes with some natural sugar, 
Or I might have like a baby food puree of pumpkin and apple, which it's not nice, but you just suck it down. It's over. But learning to refuel yourself, really starting from that very simple point, as you might with your clients as well, like how much water do you drink? How much sleep are you getting? Are you eating throughout the day? Because it's so easy when we're hyper-focused on those tasks. I used to get to three or four in the afternoon. I'd have a splitting headache and I would think I've had nothing but coffee today. That's it. And that wasn't a conscious choice. I would just be, you know, I would forget to eat. And then I would spend all evening making up for the hours that I was forgetting to eat with usually not very good choices. And so all of those things really dialing it back to the very basic, simple human needs that do have to be taken care of before we can extend ourselves into looking at some of these bigger issues is just, it's boring. (laughs) Like, no, you know, I'm just, I'm so mad that I have to think about food every day and I have to keep eating and I've got to drink water and like, it's so dull and I have to set reminders for all these things. But that's the reality of it keeping it simple to start. And then you just get to go through this process of pulling back, pulling back, pulling back and getting to see more and more holistically all these different areas that you can start to choose. Where do I want to focus next? You know, I think that's, that's the really exciting part of going through this process. We've talked a lot about the challenges, the obstacles. I want to acknowledge those because they are an ongoing, consistent part of being a grown up with ADHD, as far as I'm concerned. But there's excitement and joy and relief in there as well. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I feel like this is going to be one of those podcasts I'm going to need to listen to over and over and over again. <laughs> um, such You have such a way with words. Um, now, I want people to know where they can find you and how they can work with you. But I first I want to say I want to ask you if you have an alternate an alternate name for ADHD, uh, something that's a little less confounding. Well, it's really funny because I knew you were going to ask this question and I got very hung up on finding like a cool acronym or, you know, like, and I just got really stuck. Um, And I was calling it like rad DHD, but then that wasn't the same A sound or, you know, adventure DHD. And I was like, (laughs) that's clunky. This is the writer in me. So I don't really have this concise alternate name for it which bothers me as a writer that I can't like think of something. But what I can say about it is that it is, I'm going to get emotional. At my core, this beautiful chaotic brain of mine is such a gift. Like it is such a gift and it is challenging. It's like a, it's like a six month old golden retriever puppy. Like, I'm constantly trying to wrangle it and keep it out of things and keep it focused and keep it on track. And then I have these moments of just feeling this warmth and this joy and this beauty. And I think the struggle for me in giving it this one name is that because my ADHD is such a both and, a blessing and a curse, a pro and a con, but that's life, baby. I think stoic philosophy has been a big thing for me. I know we're wrapping up. I won't go on a big tangent. But when you said something earlier, but like, when's this going to get easy? Like this expectation. Why do we expect life to be easy? Human life's not easy. It's messy to love someone and then watch them leave the earth. That's not easy. 
to have children and then watch your heart go walking around outside your body for the rest of their life, that's not easy. None of this is easy. But we need to find those little pockets of flow and ease and beauty in there. That's my very long answer to, no, I do not have an alternate name for my ADHD. Well, I'm going... I'm going to suggest the title of your book of poetry as the alternate name for ADHD. So we could call it SDTD, Slightly Damaged, Totally Divine, which I feel like could be the ultimate, you know, I feel like that encompasses an ADHD brain for sure. So that's my, that's, I'll nominate your book title. I love it. Thank you. (laughs) I will take that nomination. That's actually perfect. That's really funny that I didn't think of that. So... (laughs) Right. <laughs> well, see, it's my job yeah. to mirror back. Right. Um, so, okay. So, how can people find you and work with you? Your your website is your name, right, Megan with two N's, uh, Burks, and I will, of course, have that link in the show notes. And do you work one on one with uh, remotely with anyone? I do. I do. So that was a great gift of the pandemic. Was I suddenly had to go online, which I was super resistant to, but I now have clients all over the world, which is super exciting. Time zones are a bit tricky sometimes. I work one-on-one directly with a very small group of people at a time, just because the coaching I do is highly individualized. So it's quite an energetic and emotional commitment from me. So I have room in uh, March and April. I've got a few spots left for coaching. I'm also in the process of finalizing and developing some online courses that will be self-guided, self-paced. None of them are at 90 days to complete freedom kind of thing, but just other ways for people to work with me. I also offer movement coaching. So I do joyful movement coaching with women, which is really just about finding a way to be in our bodies and move them that is not attached to a goal about changing the way they look or accomplishing something, actually being really present in them, which is super hard for me to do, probably why I like to help other people do it, because I get to do it as well. And then Instagram's (laughs) a great way to get in touch with me. That's the social I am on the most. And that uh, my handle on there is at Megan Burks Coaching. Yes, I'll have a link to that too. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Megan. I'm so glad I found you. You just, you really have such a way with words and... Uh, I I really appreciate your perspective and your outlook. It's just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story and sharing your time. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Your podcast, as I mentioned to you, I found it late in the game and then obsessively binged on most of the episodes. Um, And to hear just the I think something I've loved about your podcast is the variety of people that you have on there and that they're not all experts they're not all proposing solutions they're just quite vulnerably and honestly sharing you know their path as a woman with ADHD and I think that's really really important so it has been so much fun to be here with you today and thank you so much Katie oh thank you And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. 
And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year! That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time-boxing, single-tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself.